I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 220. And today in the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer, author, and DIY public and pressured land deer hunter, John Eberhardt. And we're discussing a bunch of different interesting strategies and tools for becoming a more mobile deer hunter. All right, welcome back to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, we've got John Eberhardt back with us again. And I've mentioned this on previous episodes that we've done with him, but if you're new, I do think this is worth saying again. You know, John has been possibly the most important influence on me as a hunter. He is a writer in Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. He's the host of a web video series for them. He's the co-author of books such as Bow Hunting Pressured Whitetails, Precision Bow Hunting, and Bow Hunting Whitetails the Eberhardt Way. He has a series of DVDs he puts on whitetail workshops in Michigan, and he's just widely considered one of the most successful and well-known DIY deer hunters on pressured land or public land. And for me, it was a light switch moment when I picked up his book that's called Precision Bow Hunting. When I picked that up and read it somewhere around a little over a decade ago, I think, it just changed things for me. And I've been on this very different, much more successful trajectory ever since then. So with that being the case, I'm always excited to have him on the podcast and to share his experiences with you guys. And today, it's no different. We are diving into one particular aspect of his hunting kind of repertoire, which is this idea of being a mobile hunter. And it's something that Dan and I and previous guests have talked about a lot in the past, but but John is a master of this. So I wanted to pick his brain a bit about this today, about you know why being mobile and agile and adaptable as a deer hunter is so important. And, and when I say this, I, I don't mean you know being agile in the tree. I mean being mobile or agile as in your ability to hunt different places, to move from location to location, to be able to adapt based off of new intel or scouting or observations. So in today's episode, I'm grilling John on this topic. I pick his brain about his 2017 hunting season and we end up focusing in particular on a tool he uses to be a more effective mobile deer hunter, which is a tree saddle. Now, really quick, if you're not familiar, essentially this, this tree saddle or, or sling or harness, whatever you want to call it, it, it's an alternative to a tree stand. 
Essentially, it allows you to hang from the tree in this type of harness without needing to have a pre-set up tree stand or having to tote a hang-on stand or climbing stand around with you when you're trying to hunt new spots. So it's a really intriguing option for anybody who wants to hunt a lot of different locations or new property or public land, et cetera, et cetera. So we dive into that stuff. Very interesting. I'm excited for you to hear it. So I think we should probably just get right to it. So we will take a very quick break here to thank our partners at Onyx, and then we will move on to the rest of the show. So quickly here, if you're not familiar with Onyx, they produce a hunting GPS app and GPS chips that provide detailed digital maps for hunters. These include property lines and owner information, public land borders and designations, topo lines, satellite imagery, just about anything you would want to see from a hunting perspective. And right now, I'm in the process of planning my 2018 Montana whitetail hunt, for which I'm actually going to be returning to a spot that I found last year using the Onyx Hunt app. Now, to do that, I just pulled up Onyx, and I looked at maps for the area I generally knew I wanted to focus on, and I overlaid the public and private land borders and satellite imagery, and then I looked at this river corridor that I wanted to hunt and just scrolled along the map until I found different pieces of public land that intersected with the quality cover along the river. From there, I put together this list of the best-looking spots, and I then got property owner names and addresses for the adjacent private land. So when I made it there to Montana in September, I was able to drive around the back roads, take a look at these properties you know, in person, and then I actually went and chatted with some of the neighboring landowners based off of the information I got from Onyx. And this ended up being crucially important because it led to some permission to cross private land to access some of this hard-to-get-to public land. And then the spring, it led to shed hunting permission. And if you listen to my episodes this spring, you know that my Montana shed hunting went very well. And uh, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the app that I used to locate these areas. So if you're interested in learning more about Onyx yourself, you can visit onyxmaps.com or search for Onyx on your phone's app store. So with that said then, let's get right to the show and get chatting with John Eberhardt. All right, we're back today with John Eberhardt. And John, you, you've been on the show twice before, so uh, thanks now for making it lucky number three. Mark, I am grateful for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Hey, it's my it's my pleasure. I, I've said it many times before, but I've always been able to point to you as being one of uh, the most important influences on me as a deer hunter. So, so it's... It's always a treat to get to actually chat with you in person. And the first couple times we had you on the show, we kind of dived deep across. Or maybe let me take that back. We didn't dive deep. We kind of did like a full spectrum look at how you approach deer hunting in heavily pressured places and in public lands. And we kind of touched on a whole slew of different topics that, that you focus on. But today I kind of wanted to focus on just one piece of that. And that was how you are able to be a mobile deer hunter. So the importance of being mobile and flexible and being able to hunt and make changes on the fly. I know that's something you talk a lot about. And you also talk a lot about how you use a saddle to do that. So so kind of my goal here, John, today was to cover that topic in depth. Before we get to that, though, I know that you had an interesting 2017 season. I always like to hear about how your recent hunts went. Last time we talked, you just came off of a 2016 season where I think I think you I think you killed two like 140 inch plus bucks. It sounded like that was an incredible year. 
in 2017, I, I did read a story of a frustrating hunt of yours and then a cool hunt of yours. Um, uh, would you be up for telling us those two stories? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first one was in Michigan, and it was a, um, it was kind of a hunt where I had these preset locations. It's on 37 acres. I think I have 16 different trees prepared on this 37-acre uh, parcel, which I hunt with two other hunters, um, free permission property. And uh, I went in on an evening hunt to hunt a specific tree. It was a red oak tree behind a standing cornfield, and it had well, scrapes on I'm sorry? Sorry to interrupt, but when was this? What time of year? Uh, it was October. October, okay, mid, mid-October, right? Yep, uh, mid, eh, kind of a little later than mid-October. I can't. I think it was October 19th. Yep. Memory serves me correctly. And anyway, I went, and there was this red oak, and it had uh, several scrapes under it from the 2016 season when I prepared the tree. And uh, when I went to this tree, I knew that if those scrapes were not going to be active, that I was going to have to go to another tree in which I would have had to cross a river. Yeah, and an actual river, not a creek. So I took my waders with me. And when I got to the tree, the red oak with the scrapes underneath it, the scrapes were inactive. So um, I walked down the edge of the cornfield uh, and then went through a little cattail marsh area about 40 yards and crossed a river. And I had another tree prepped just across the river, maybe 15 to 20 yards from the water. And it was bedding area all around it. Uh, so that's what I did. I crossed the river, set up on that tree, and uh, on that evening hunt, uh, there was a doe that came, which was actually kind of early in the year for this, but October 19th, this doe came out of the bedding area, ran across the river. I mean, didn't stop, hesitate, ran across the river through that 40-yard gap of marsh and into the standing cornfield. So I knew for her to run across the river like that, something was behind her. And within several seconds, I heard a, you know, a grunt. And uh, sure enough, here comes this uh, buck that I knew was in the area. I, had a, I actually had a picture of him that another hunter on the property had a picture, which he showed me. And it was a big nine point. And uh, I stopped him at about 14 yards and took the shot and killed him. And so that was the, that was the good hunt. And I, I kind of look at that as a... Uh, you know, not really a freelance hunt because I wasn't freelancing to another location, you know, just looking for a new spot. But I did go to a preset location that was not active. So I, I became proactive and went to a different location uh, where I had to actually use waders to cross the river for my, so, for my entry. So why, why, did you, why did you choose to go into that first location? Like what was the rationale? Why did you say, okay, today is October 19th. What conditions or factors pointed you to say okay i'm going to head to this tree check it out and then if that doesn't work out then i've got the plan b what what pointed you in that direction well it was uh you know october 19th and that's that's kind of getting close to the beginning of that pre-rut phase where mature bucks start checking their you know checking their scrape areas during daylight hours you know it's pretty common during that October lull to have scrapes be very, very active. But if it's, if they're being checked by a mature buck, they're typically in, in a state like Michigan with so much hunting pressure, it's usually during the security of darkness. So October 19th is getting about the time frame, you know, 20th, somewhere in there, where bucks start 
to break that nocturnal time frame and start scent checking for early estrus does, and obviously their scrape areas are on that routine. So that's why I went to that red oak, because it had scrapes there from the previous fall when I prepared it, and I was going in to check, and if the scrapes were active, I was going to hunt that tree, and if they were inactive, my plan was to go over to the edge of this bedding area right on the edge of the river where, you know, that's just going to be a natural flow for deer, uh, and that's, that's exactly what I did. And obviously, you know, the pre-rut was starting to kick in because this buck pushed this doe out of the bedding area, and he was going to follow her across the river into that standing corn. So she must have been very close to or possibly even, you know, been one of those early does that come into estrus early. Hmm. Yeah, it is interesting to see that happening so early. I'm curious, before we before we fast forward all the way to the late season in that other hunt I mentioned, as I as I'm as I'm hearing you talk about this October nineteenth hunt, I'm just kinda curious, like what does your season look like in you know, during the Michigan hunting season or during your typical year? Are you going out and hunting somewhere almost every day or are you just hunting, you know, the weekends or do you sit do you have, you know, forty different locations and you just look at, you know, okay, what factors point me here? Or do you just say, Okay, in the early season I know I've got fifteen stands that have some kind of apples tree or some kind of food source. I'm just gonna cycle through each of these till I find the hot sign. I'm just kinda at a high level, what does your mindset and season look like as it begins and shifts through the year when you're just making your decisions of when and where to hunt? Uh well Keeping in mind that I'm from Michigan, which is the most heavily bow-hunted state in the country, uh, most of the bucks that I'm trying to kill because I hunt strictly public land and free knock-on doors for permission properties, they get a lot of pressure. The whole area, even on the free permission properties, you know, all of the hunters in the area surrounding properties, you know, they all bow-hunt. So there could be anywhere from 15 to possibly 30 bow-hunters that are hunting in a 640-acre section. So most of the mature bucks are nocturnal prior to the season even opening because of all the other hunters' preseason scouting and location prep. That's why I do all my stuff during postseason. Um, so typically I'll hunt the first three days of season, and that would be mornings and evenings. No matter what the dates are, it's not just a weekend deal. I, I have the luxury of having a job where I can hunt some weekdays. And then typically after the like the third, possibly even the fourth fourth day of season, I might hunt depending on weather conditions. If it's you know drizzly rain or nasty weather, I'll, I will hunt. Whereas if it's a nice sunny bluebird day, usually after the third, I'm done. And then I typically don't hunt until around the 20th of October. And then again, it's going to dictate on weather conditions. You know, deer are going to move a lot. A mature buck that I'm trying to pursue and kill is going to be more apt to move during inclement weather conditions around the 20th of October. You know, if it's rainy or cold or something like that, then he's going to do on a, you know, 65, 75-degree bluebird day. You're going to see a lot of other types of deer, subordinate bucks and does and stuff on bluebird days. But for a mature buck to move that early in October, you know, which is the kind of the somewhat the beginning of the pre-rut, it's got to be pretty nasty weather for him to do that. Um, in which what's kind of weird is this particular day, it was actually a 
pretty nice day and I spent it and I was still successful. But I was just, I was just getting to the point where I was, you know, got, you got to start hunting. You know, as a, as a deer hunter, when you totally quit hunting for two weeks, you know, there's just something internally that says you're missing out, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and this was a location, it was in central Michigan where there's not typically a lot of big bucks and, and, uh, you know, my better spots are in southern Michigan where there's more ag and swamp. And I said, eh, what the heck, I'll just go out this evening and see what's going on because I, I had some free time. Hmm. How many different, you know, this is something I always struggle with. I'm always wondering, you know, do I have enough different options as far as properties? Every year I inevitably find myself at some point during the season wishing that I had more places that I had ready to go or that I could check out. And I always, when, I, when we talk to all these different people, you find typically two different types of successful deer hunters. You've got one that owns some land and that they're able to control it. So those guys have got their own thing going on they can control. But for the people that don't own land, for the folks like you that are hunting either public land or private by permission, usually the most consistent ones seem to have a bunch of spots lined up so that they can, on any given year, they have many, many different options so that if one's messed up because of other hunters or because some type of conditions aren't right or whatever it might be, they have a whole bunch of backups. In any given year, how many different properties or areas do you have kind of available to, to, to go hunt during a given year? Uh, during a typical year, and I'm going back maybe, let's say, over the last, I've been bowling over 50 years, and over the last 35 years, I'll typically have two to three private parcels where I've acquired free hunting permission and several public land parcels. And it's extremely rare that I will not have at least 40 trees prepped during season. All, you know, during postseason is when I do all that stuff, and I'll usually have 40 trees prepped every year before season starts. And some are going to be, some are early season trees. Some are going to be, you know, viewing secondary trees for that October lull, where I may just go sit where I can have a large viewing area. Others are going to be pre-rut locations. Others are going to be rut phase locations, you know, peak rut locations. Primarily those are going to be in bedding areas where deer are chasing and actually doing the breeding. Uh, some are going to be morning locations. Some are midday locations. Some are strictly evening locations. You know, if you're if you're prepping a tree, let's say you have a couple apple trees prepped, those are strictly evening locations because if you enter them in a morning hunt, you're going to spook deer feeding at them with your entry. And typically they're great early season locations if they've been left alone during preseason. They're good early season locations where you might possibly catch a mature buck, you know, on his early season pattern. He hasn't turned nocturnal yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's a feeding location because early season, everything revolves around food. Whereas when it gets closer to the rut phases, everything revolves around sex and doe activity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything has a rhyme and a reason. And the more options a hunter has, the more successful he will be. I, I, it's rare that I hunt any location more than three times during the course of the season. Any specific stand location you're saying? Yes, correct. That, that any, and it's, extremely rare I hunt any specific tree more than three hunts per season. And, you know, and you prep, you know, if I have 40, 50 trees prepped, you know, and some are at white oak, some are at apple trees, uh, some are at primary scrape areas, you know, if 
those were preset from the previous season's sign or just re readdressed and re-cleaned up because they're stands up hunted for years. And obviously the years the apple trees are not producing or white oaks aren't producing acorns or red oaks or whatever, or crop rotations change the scrape areas, those those trees, even though there may be 40 or 50 total, you know, 25 of them, 20 to 25 of them are going to become totally irrelevant just because of the food sources. Yeah. Would you, would you say that the majority of the days when you actually kill a deer are happening on a first sit in a tree for that year? So many Typically, people talk yeah. about, yeah. So many people we talk to, it's that, that power of the very first sit seems to be disproportionately, those are the, those are the times we end up killing something. Well, well, I look at, I look at myself a little bit different than most, most hunters because my scent control is pretty much perfect. Uh, I pay zero attention to the wind. So I feel very comfortable sitting, let's say it's uh, November 1st, pre-rut. You know, it's right in the middle of pre-rut. And I'm, let's say, hunting over a primary scrape area. You know, as long as I'm, or let's say I'm hunting in an apple tree that's still dropping apples, it, it, where I know deer are going to come in and I'm going to physically see deer. As long as I'm not seeing a change in the number of deer I'm seeing or the activity, let's say, at a scrape area, you know, it's remaining active and I know I'm not spooking anything with my entries and exits. I'm not spooking anything on stand because nothing can win me. Um, I will hunt that several times in a row, you know, two to three times in a row, and that'll be my three three hunts from that location because um, I'm not I'm not concerned about spooking stuff. Most hunters don't have a very good scent control, even the TV. I've never seen a TV guy with a decent scent control regimen, and so every time they go in and hunt a location, they're leaving residual odor on the ground from their entries, from their exits, and deer spook because they're downwind of them, and so they're as soon as they start hunting a location, they're altering deer traffic at that location because of their human odor. I don't view it that way because I don't get winded, and I can have deer walk through a weed field that I've walked through, you know, prior with my entry and not spook. So, to me, that's a little bit different than the than most hunters because of my scent control. So I think I can get away with hunting something several times without altering it, whereas most hunters can't. And that's really important during the rut phases because when you're hunting mature bucks in a state like Michigan where there's very, very few mature bucks and they're typically with does during the the breeding cycle period, you know, during the main rut, uh, you know, you may hunt over a primary scrape area and not see anything, but the, the mature buck you're trying to kill is doed up. He's someplace else. You know, he's with a doe. So once her, she's finished with that cycle, uh, he's going to have to go out and search for another estrus doe. So then he may possibly come and visit that scrape area because that's in his routine of searching for does. So when that, you know, so because of my scent control, I'm, I'm able to hunt a specific location, a destination location, several hunts in a row without concern. And that way, you know, when he does come back, that doe traffic is still coming in and out of that spot. And that's where he's going to continue to search for his next estrus doe. Because the first hunter mm-hmm. or two I hunted there, he may have been doed up. Right, right. So speaking of that time frame then, you killed your buck on October 19th last year. Any any other notable encounters or hunts uh, in the in the following two weeks then for you in Michigan? Anything that stands out? Never saw another shooter. 
Wow. That was the only good buck I saw during the entire season. Anything you can attribute that to? Did you have something happen on a property that screwed things up or just, just kind of how it goes in Michigan? Uh, that's just kind of how it goes in Michigan because you can't beat up your stands a lot. And, uh, you know, I move, I move around a lot. And nobody, that was the only buck that any of the other hunters on any of the properties that I hunt had any pictures of that I would kill. So I, I you know, it's not like out west, you know, where you're going to have half a dozen, eight, eight mature bucks that a person might shoot in a section. In, in Michigan, because there's so few mature bucks, you know, there, some some stats put it, at, you know, like there's, one percent of the bucks in an area are you know three and a half years and older so you know you if you get 20 bucks per section you know there may be five sections where you've only got one buck that i one buck that i would want to kill so it's not like out west where there's just lots of mature bucks and uh you know in, in michigan there's just years there's been years i've never seen a shooter yeah. you know that i want to shoot so it, it's it's it just got a lot to do with properties you know 20 2014 15 and 16 i think all three of those years i killed two book bucks in michigan uh, so you know they were there and i had the opportunity to kill them um and in 2017 that just didn't seem to be the case hmm. obviously deer are going to move in from other areas during the you know main rut but i just wasn't on the stand at the right time and i don't use cameras so i i don't really i can't really tell what was there you know when i wasn't i don't yeah. use cameras in michigan yeah a couple of years ago when we first had you on the podcast you talked about why it is that you at that time you said that you used cameras sparingly i think um mm -hmm. it, have you have your thoughts on cameras evolved at all recently it sounds like now you're using them not at all is is there a particular reason why you've gone completely zero use on that now well, that big buck I shot in 2014 on opening morning, I had used a camera there because it was a location that I had went back to because somebody else had seen this buck and told me about it, and it was a property I hunted years ago, very tiny little parcel. So I used a camera in that specific location on that specific property uh, because I could put a camera in an invasive location and take a surveillance of what the buck he's talking about, how actually big it was. Uh, but most of the properties I hunt are not close to my house. This one was relatively close to where I live. Um, and I just don't, I don't, I don't have the time and I don't like making the physical intrusions of a, you know, to check cameras. I think that's very invasive in a highly pressured state where mature bucks don't allow a lot of invasiveness. You know, they avoid those areas until after dark. And that's why I don't use cameras very, very infrequently in Michigan. Last year, I did not have a uh, camera out. Now, I totally hunt cameras when I hunt out of state. I put a camera at every single location because deer just aren't that smart. In... And when I say out of state, obviously, I'm I'm going to the Iowa's and Kansas and, you know, southern Illinois where you know, there's a lot, a lot of mature bucks and very, very little hunting competition. And, and you can be relatively intrusive and it doesn't really mean a lot to deer still do what they do mm -hmm. so speaking of those out-of-state hunts then you did a you did another one of your late season ohio hunts uh i heard about last year how, how did that all go down that was really interesting <laughs> <laughs> that that was a uh 
major mistake on my part, and I wrote an article about it. Um, I didn't look at the weather. I've done very well out of state in December after, you know, like Illinois' gun season or after the Ohio gun season, go out there and bow on. And I've had a pretty decent success rate. And uh, But I always looked at the weather, and this time I didn't. I had a specific open time that I could go, and I just went. And uh, it was kind of in the mid-30s, and then got a little bit of snow, got like two inches of snow, and then it got down into the teens the rest of the week. And, and everything was so crunchy. I mean, you could lit- – as soon as I would get out of my minivan and take a step – take a couple steps towards the woods, I could hear deer running. I mean, they could literally hear crunching snow or crunching leaves probably for a quarter mile because it was also no wind that week. It was just dead calm. And obviously in December there's no foliage to to kind of absorb, absorb the noise, you know, my walking noise. So um, I made a big mistake by not checking the weather, you know, Typically on my out-of-state hunts in December, I wait till there's a decent amount of snow where I can walk quietly, and I'm looking at, you know, deer sign within 24 hours of when it was made, and on this hunt, I didn't. And I wrote an article about how stupid I was because that was dumb of me not to check the weather. <laughs> so so you had this crispy, crunchy leaves everywhere. How did you try to, I mean, it sounds like when you try to go into stands, you were spooking deer, but how did you try to adjust to that? Were you able to find any way to pull it off to, to make a doable hunt? Uh, I did on one of the locations, probably the best location. It was, there was a huge cutover, probably a quarter of a mile from my tree stand. And it was not on the property. I could hunt the cutover. Wasn't they'd cut it over like five years ago. So it was just dense saplings. And, um, the first time I went in there to hunt, I remember I started walking and it was an evening hunt. I totally abandoned morning hunts because morning hunts, there was no way. And I started walking and within 20 yards of the van, I could hear deer running at least a quarter mile in front of me, leaving the property I was hunting, going in toward, and then taking off into that, uh, sapling area, the cutover. So what I started doing, on, I only had three locations prepared total, and they were all on different properties, free permission properties. So what I started doing is I started getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning because I wasn't going to hunt, and I went to each three of those locations, and I physically walked to the trees so that I would spook any deer that were bedded back away from the location with the thought that hopefully in the evening when I went back to hunt, you know, they would have been calmed down enough for me going in at eight, nine, nine thirty, and they would filter back out, uh, you know, in, in the evening before dark. And I did have 100, about 110 inch, a point walk under my tree that I, I passed on and he, he was just too small. So, um, that that's what I did is I just went into those locations earlier in the morning to spook any deer way beyond where I was going to hunt where they couldn't hopefully hear me come in in the evening and then they would filter back in because hmm. I was hunting in places where there was food either I was either in a saddle you know, transition saddle from a from a bedding area to a feeding location or I was in some at a location where there were some oaks with some still some acorns on the ground okay 
Interesting. So future hunts now, uh, late season, what's the big takeaway? You're going to wait again for the snow or, or anything else there? Yep. Always. I'm, yes, I will always, always look at the weather and wait for snow. The, I killed two monster bucks in Illinois on public land. Uh, one was in 2008 and one was in 2007. Yeah, 2007 and 2008, and both times, uh, you know, I I waited for there to be a, you know, on AccuWeather, I waited for there to be a snow coming through, and then uh, after it looked like it went through, I called the park rangers, because those parks down there had uh, park rangers, and asked them if they got the snow, and both times they did, so they had, you know, six to eight inches of fresh powder snow on the ground, so I left immediately, my vehicle was packed, and I had, I had the luxury of having time, you know, whatever time we had snow, I could go. I had all of December open pretty much. And, uh, and so now when I get there, I'm there within 24 hours of the snow. And when I'm scouting, I'm looking at sign that was made within the last 24 hours. So it's all fresh sign. It's not like you're looking at bare ground or snow that's been on the ground for three weeks. And, you know, you can't, you can't disseminate between fresh tracks and old tracks or, you know, fresh runways and old runways. And so now I'm looking at sign that was made immediately within the last 24 hours. And that just made hunting easy. Both of those hunts, 2007, 2008, I killed, I killed book bucks. One was a 160 inch 12 point on my very first evening hunt. Wow. After scouting a day and a half and prepping, prepping a couple locations and then hunting, hunting uh, that first evening hunt i killed a nine point on the first hunt in 2007 and a 12 point in 2008 this this is a perfect segue because you're you're talking here about a situation where you're going in you're looking at brand new fresh sign and then right away being able to react to that and set up stands and set up a hunting location right then and there and i know there's many other examples of this kind of thing that i've heard you talk about and it seems to come down to your ability to be mobile. You're able to go into a place and hunt somewhere, somewhere new quickly. You can adjust quickly. You can change your setup quickly. Um, why do you think being mobile as a deer hunter is important? Can you can you talk through some of the benefits there? Well, yeah, being mobile is extremely important because first first off, when I say mobile, you know, I'm not talking about you watch some of these. TV commercials, and you got somebody walking down a nice, pristine two-track with a climber on their back and their bow and their backpack, you know, that, to me, that's not mobile. You know, they're setting up in a tree on the fly in an open timber because they're in areas where there's so many mature bucks, they're going to get an opportunity pretty much no matter what they do. Um, When I'm talking mobile, I'm talking about you got a backpack, your bow, and I hunt out of something called a harness. saddle type harness so i'm extremely mobile and being mobile is very important all the trees i have prepped in michigan because i've been hunting out of this harness system since 1981 they're all set up for this harness so i can have 40 50 trees prepped and i can hunt out of all of them with this harness that weighs about a pound and a half so i just walk to the tree and jump up it and hunt it so i you know i can go from tree to tree and if the sign is not there you know i hunt i just wait until I hit a tree where the sign is there, and so it's there for me to hunt. Or for freelance hunting. You know, if you're freelance hunting on public land, uh, my biggest buck I ever killed was 180-incher on a freelance hunt. Well, if you're freelancing on public land or in a pressured area, 
you're not walking down a two-track, and you're not walking through open timber. You've got to go through areas where, you know, there's security cover, and you're not going to do that with a climber on your back or a hang-on with a bunch of sticks. It's just too cumbersome. You just can't do it. It's physically impossible to buck brush and go through swamps and marshes and stuff. So the more mobile you are, the more opportunities you're going to get because you can get back in the brush and in the cover where the mature deer, mature bucks are actually at and feel comfortable moving during daylight hours. Um, and the more mobile you are, the more opportunities you're going to get. And another thing that's cool about that is the harnesses, you know, it's dead quiet. It's all made out of fabric, so there's no noise or anything during the hunt. Yeah. Do, do you ever have a situation where you're heading in to hunt a prepared location but you see something that you realize is like a flashing light that says you need to hunt here right now, and you just set up a brand new spot right then and there and hunt. Is that something you ever do just based on recent intel? Uh, yes, uh, that's something I have done. Um, only one time have I done that successfully, but there's been several occasions. In fact, I just wrote an article about it, which will probably be in deer, deer hunting before the end of the year. Uh, where I will go to a location that's not, and the location just doesn't have the deer sign because I prepped it in postseason. You know, maybe there was a lot of runways in the area or whatever, and those runways are inactive because there's no acorns in that area anymore. Where I've went to a location with my freelance fanny pack on, full of steps, and then my harness is always in my backpack 100% of the time. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to hunt here, so I'm just going to go freelance. And that's exactly what happened on that 180-inch buck I killed. I, I physically hunted a location early in the morning, and it and it was going to be an all-day sit. And it wasn't panning out, so I moved to another. I just pulled my stuff as I came down the tree and just freelanced about a quarter mile away to a huge primary scrape area that I found and set up on that and shot that buck in the evening. And in Michigan in 1970, I think it was six. Uh, I kind of did the same thing. I went to a tree, a preset tree, and the sign was, this one I didn't actually hunt, though. The sign, and it was an evening hunt. The sign was just not there from the previous fall. So I just freelanced, I don't know, I was probably 300 yards, maybe 400 yards away, and I found an oak tree, a white oak tree on the edge of some saplings. Uh, and it, it didn't have any scrapes underneath it, but it had several runways coming out of the saplings to this white oak, and then there was some other runways coming through the timber to, that fed to this white oak because it had a lot of acorns on the ground and a lot of droppings. And I, and uh, this was way before I hunted out of a harness. This was back when you just climbed up a tree and sat on a branch. And I, I climbed the tree and I shot a ten point on that particular hunt. So that was a freelance hunt as well. And freelance hunting works really good if you're mobile. And also another big aspect of freelance hunting nowadays is scent. You know, you got to be scent free because if you're wandering around through the woods, leaving your human odor, you know, you're you're setting up stages where a mature buck's not going to move through that area because you left so much human odor. He's going to probably turn around and leave. So, you know, being scent free is another big aspect of freelance hunting as well. Yeah. When you, when you say freelance hunting, when you, when you hunted a spot, didn't go well in the morning and then you take off for the rest of the day and you're freelance hunting. Can you, can you just explain a little more what you mean by that? Sure. Okay. Like the, let's say the one time I killed that big buck, I hunted a tree and I was in the tree probably an hour and a half before daylight 
it was an all day it was going to be an all day set um by about 9:30 maybe you know i just wasn't seeing anything and i just wasn't getting a good vibe on this location and i was seeing deer in the distance you know cuz this was in mid november this was dang near into gun, almost gun season. So all the foliage was down. And I did see deer cruising through in a distance. So I got down out of the tree, pulled all my steps as I went down. I had a doe decoy out, so I put the decoy back in her her uh, bag, you know, a military duffel bag. And I just laid her under the tree. I wasn't going to use the decoy. I wasn't going to tote that around. And I just kind of slowly wandered through the timber and... Uh, back towards this big river, which is where I was seeing the deer activity. And again, I found, I found a monstrous primary scrape area. There was four huge scrapes and it was in a terrain feature dump. So there, there was no food there. There was no crop trees, mass trees or anything like that. There, I was in a total timber area. There was no crops anywhere around. And, uh, but there was some train features dumps. There was a little open weed field, and then this one patch of trees came here, and then there was a little saddle over here, which kind of was by the river. And uh, it was a train feature dump, which meant there was a lot of doe activity in that spot, and that's why that primary scrape area was there, because there was a lot of doe activity. And one of the scrapes had two monstrous clumps of of uh, deer droppings. They were all clumped together, which is typically a sign of a big buck, and the pellets were huge. And uh, so I prepped a tree next to it and shot that buck up at him. I rattled him in, I'd say about 20 minutes before dark. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that on this particular hunt, you've been seeing deer activity from your original stand in the direction that you eventually headed. Um, Correct. And it makes me think a dilemma I find myself in sometimes is I'll be sitting in a given stand location. Let's say it's the morning and I see, let's let's say a mature buck, a buck that I'd like to target. I see that buck moving somewhere else. I can watch him. He's out of range though. I see him go do something. He passes through, he's cruising past a bedding area or something like that. And maybe I, I'm now realizing, oh man, he's, he's cruising 70 yards away. And I thought he was going to cruise by 30 yards or whatever. And I'm always sitting here in these types of situations like, how soon should you make a move? Do you, do you, if you see a mature buck do something today, should you be switching to try to hunt in that new spot tomorrow? Or do you need to see that deer do it twice to determine it's, it's not an anomaly, but it's a pattern? Um, how, you know, how quickly do you move on an observation like that? Um, uh, it's an, in, it's an interesting scenario because I, that happened to me in 2000. Uh, 2001, I think. Uh, but first off, you got to consider where is this deer moving through? Is it through ample or adequate security cover? Because if, if there's a deer just walking across a big opening, I would never, ever even consider in Michigan moving to that location on the next day's hunt at the same time. Because the odds of the deer doing, he might have been on a hot door or something, and the odds of that happening again the next day are pretty skinny because mm-hmm. typically mature bucks are not going to cross through vulnerable areas during daylight hours. So I would look at that as an anomaly. But if I seen a deer transitioning 7,500 yards away and he's going through some good security cover, 
and he's sticking his nose down to the ground once in a while, absolutely I would move. There is no question about it because there's an excellent chance that that's his routine, especially if it's during pre-ride. And I did that in 2001 with my son Chris. My son Chris was actually hunting with me, and we, we wrote the three books together. And uh, I had seen this buck the day before, and I, he was I was probably 80, I felt similar to what you're talking about, about 80 yards probably. He was cruising along the edge of this uh, crop field through some heavy cover, probably 20 yards inside of the edge of the crop field in the timber. And he's kept sticking his nose to the ground. So I knew I had, I had to move over there for the next day at the same, to be there in that spot on the same time frame. And so Chris was home from Germany. So I set up, I set him up in, in a tree over there and, uh, he ended up getting a shot at that buck on the same exact route, almost at the same exact time in an early, early afternoon, late October. In fact, I think, I think it was November. It was in November. I take that back early November. And, uh, he, he didn't make that particular kill, but when he shot, he spooked the deer over by me, and I ended up killing the, that deer. Wow. That deer came over me on his exit route, circling around back to go back into his bedding area. He went right by me at like 12 yards. Jeez, that worked out well. Yeah, but, I mean, it it worked out. I mean, it was the exact situation you're talking about. Chris moved over to where that buck was the day before, and that buck had that same exact route the next day. Hmm. So, so you you typically you'd make the move right away. You wouldn't wait and try to see that multiple times to confirm if if he's moving within an area of cover that seems to be you know a reasonable place to to move again in the future. You're you're gonna go there. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Unless unless I saw him go through with a doe, if he went through following a doe, which usually if they're with a hot doe, you know there's no rhyme or reason to their traffic. You know, you know, unless they're within a bet, a secure bedding area, mm-hmm. if they're just transitioning through someplace and he's with a hot doe, no, I doubt I would make that move. Yeah, that makes but if sense. he's going through on a search process by himself, yeah, I definitely would make that move. Yeah, so so you're able to make these kinds of moves pretty quickly because of your specific setup. Now, you definitely can be mobile in things like a climbing tree stand or a hang-on tree stand with sticks, and a lot of people use that stuff. But I know that you personally, you're using this saddle. And it's something that you've mentioned in previous podcasts with us and in your books and, and in talking with other people. But at least the two of us on this show, we've never been able to dive deep into the ins and outs of your setup. And, and saddle hunting is becoming a little more popular more and more people are talking about it it's starting to pick up some buzz um much in part probably because you've been talking about it for a long time and people are starting to catch on to it um so i wanted to kind of dive into that um can you talk a little bit about what this is i mean at the highest level what is what is a saddle why do you use that well first off it's more of an arborist style harness uh there was a company called the tree saddle and that's where the saddle word came out but it's it's very similar. They're very similar to what a tree climber uses, you know, that cuts branches and stuff, um, an arborist harness. And it's basically, it's made out of fabric. You climb the tree with tree steps or sticks or whatever you'd use to climb out of a hang-on. I prefer steps because I can put 
you know, 18 steps in a small fanny pack, so they're not cumbersome. To me, cumbersome really is a hindrance because I'm hunting pressured properties where everything revolves around some semblance of security cover and with sticks that's adding cumbersome and it makes it difficult to access some of these areas. Um, but it's basically, it's a harness. You climb the tree, you wrap a lead, you're always tethered to the tree. There is nothing safer than a harness. Nothing, they've, nobody's ever fell from a harness and they've been out since the early 80s. Um, so you're always tethered to the tree with a safety harness, and then once you get up to where you're going to physically hunt, you hook up your lead strap, and then you disattach your safety harness, and then you basically hunt. So you're going to have a ring of steps, whether they're strap-ons for public land or screw-ins on private, around the tree. So you can move around the tree, and you can shoot 360 degrees. You can use the tree as a blocker. You know, when you're hunting at a destination location, let's say at a scrape area or at a white oak or at an apple tree where there's going to be multiple deer, does, and subordinate bucks come in, probably prior to you ever getting an opportunity at a mature buck, and they're going to be loitering there for a while, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes oftentimes. And if you're in a tree stand, and typically with a tree stand, you're going to be kicked off a little bit to the side of the tree so that you can shoot to the actual destination apple tree or whatever or primary scrape area and typically those opportunities happen during the rough phases when the foliage is down your odds of getting picked with four or five deer hanging around there for a period of time is really really high because you're kicked off to the side of the tree so you can shoot directly to your left if you're right-handed whereas with a harness you are typically you hunt a little bit higher because they're so safe but you are tethered on the opposite side of the tree so you got the tree trunk blocking your visual and then when the opportunity happens you know you're just peeking around the corner of the tree you just swing around swing around a little bit to the side and and take your take your shot so you've got something that's totally quiet because it's made out of fabric uh it's safer than anything out there because you are 100 percent tethered to the tree 100 percent of the time what during your ascension and descension uh it's very comfortable once you learn how to use it for all day sits, uh, unsurpassed mobility for transitioning through cover, no cumbersome sticks, no cumbersome stand. Uh, depending on the model, you know, there's a couple different models out. They can weigh anywhere from one to three pounds, which is extremely light, and they roll up and they fit in your backpack, so you're not having anything cumbersome on your back. you got 360-degree shooting mobility, so you can shoot around any tree you hunt from, and, uh, you know, that's a huge factor in itself. You know, a lot of times you with the tree stands and I hunted out of tree stands a few years back in the late seventies. You know, if you get a deer on the backside of the tree, you just can't shoot through the tree and you miss that opportunity. So with this thing, you can move around the tree and shoot any direction. You can use the tree as the blocker at a destination site. Um, you can hunt any size tree, you know, unlike a climber where you have to have a tree that's devoid of branches with this, you can hunt trees with branches. Uh, you can hunt leaning trees, Trees can be leaning up to 15 degrees, and you can still comfortably hunt them. Uh, doubles the harness doubles as a hands-free uh, location prepar you know a tree preparation harness. Uh, you can have as many trees prepared as you would like, and you only have one harness to hunt out of all of them. So nobody's going to hunt your tree when you're not there. Nobody's going to steal your stand because it's in your backpack. Um, it's always with you. Um, it, it's just 
and for freelance hunting, you know, the mobility factor for freelance hunting, because it's in your backpack and your steps are in a fanny pack, you are, the only thing that's really cumbersome on your entire body is carrying your bow, the only thing with a frame that could be cumbersome. And I've exclusively hunted out of a harness since 1981, and, and I would say, I could safely state that at least 50% of the deer bucks that of the 50 book bucks I have, at least 50, exactly 50, actually, uh, at least half of those bucks would not have been killed if I would have been using any type of a conventional stand. They're just not even comparable. So there's all these, I mean, those all sound like very uh, compelling benefits. But I'm curious, what are the downsides? And a couple things that have always stood out to me that always kind of made me apprehensive a little bit would be, for example... It seems like to be able to move into position in different shots, you have to move a lot. Like those, that swinging motion you talked about, is that something that ever gets you in trouble? Or, or number two, in order to be able to swing around the tree and get shots, it seems like you'd have to have a lot of branches down. Like you have to cut a lot of. If you're in a tree that has a lot of branches, do you need to cut a bunch of branches so you're able to maneuver? And then does that end up leaving you, you know, hung out to dry with deer being able to see you? Are those really downsides, or am I just kind of um, making that up. <laughs> no, none of those are downsides because none of them really mean anything. First off, if you do, if let's say you are in a pine tree, okay, and you do feel like you're going to have shooting options, you know, not all, not all trees you get in, do you assume you're going to have shooting options 360 degrees, but a lot of, a lot of trees you do. You know, when I'm hunting at a destination location, I only clear a shooting lane to the actual destination location because I know that's where the deer are physically coming. I don't have to have five, four shooting lanes behind me or to the sides. I just make it to that spot. But a lot of locations, you want 360-degree shooting diameter. And if and in that particular case, yeah, you may have to, on private ground, uh, rape the tree a little bit. you got to cut branches so you can swing around. But... Your other option is hunting from a tree stand where you're losing 180 degrees of shooting around the tree because you're hunting in a tree stand and you can't shoot through the tree and you can't lean to the side if you're hunting in a bigger, you know, anything with a decent diameter. And that's another huge option. I can hunt a tree that's, I can hunt a flat wall if I wanted to. If I, as long as I can climb it, I've, I've shot bucks out of trees that there is no way on God's green earth you can put a climber or a hang on in. They're just too big a diameter. And I've also shot shot bucks out of trees that were four inches in diameter where they're too small really for a hang on. But I had other clumps of trees around me for, you know, to give my, give me some sort of concealment cover. Um, what were, what was, uh, you said a couple of other things. Yeah. So the 360 yeah. is a huge deal. Yep. But now, you said something else. Well, what about the movement? So in order to position yeah. yourself for shots, do you, do you have to do anything to, to account for that movement? It sounds like you would have to move more often in the saddle than in a tree stand. But that's oh, absolutely just the... not. Okay. Absolutely not. No way. When you set up in a harness, you set up exactly the same as you would with a tree stand. If you're going to put up a tree stand, you're going to put it up if you're right-handed where your most opportune shot's going to be someplace in front of you to 90 or 120 degrees to your left. So that's going to be your opportune shooting place. That's where you assume your shots are going to be. You do the exact same thing with the harness. You get up in the tree and you hook up your lead, if you're right-handed, where you're going to be hanging facing the tree. 
and your most opportune shots are going to be to your left. But with a harness, without even moving off the two steps that your feet are perched on, you're going to be able to shoot at least 180 degrees without moving at all because you're going to be able to just lean a little bit and shoot pretty much directly behind the tree, you know, just by leaning out a little bit. And then you can twist at your waist while your feet are still planted right where you were sitting. You can twist at your waist and you can shoot pretty far behind you. Well, well more than well farther behind you than just straight behind your back. You can shoot actually a little farther left than straight behind your back. So, and then let's say you're in a harness and I see that I'm a right-handed guy. I see a deer, I see an opportunity that's going to take place and it's going to be 120 degrees off to my right. So it's going to be basically on the backside of the tree and off a little bit even more to the right where I have to make a movement. What I will do is I usually have a bow hanger directly to my left, 90 degrees to my left, and I always put a bow hanger on the back side of the tree. So if I see something that's coming together, I will lift the bow up, put it on the back side of the tree hook, and then I'll move slowly move around the tree. Usually it's only a, you know one step. I move one step left with my left foot and then put my right foot on the tree that maybe my left foot had been on. So now my bow's still hanging there, and now I'm waiting for that shot opportunity to take place, and then I just pick up the bow and, and make the shot. Hmm. Very, very minimal movement. Interesting. Do you, do you have any – is is shooting a bow in this kind of position challenging at all? I imagine you know, we talk so much when it comes to archery form, how important it is to have consistent – you know, consistently place your feet in the same kind of way and have the same kind of foundation and making sure when you draw back you've got this – consistent T formation. Um, do you need to, I imagine you need to practice a lot with in a sling to get used to it. Is that true or not true or that's not true. No, the tree sling or (laughs) tree sling, the harness system, you've got a three, three points of your body are in contact holding supporting weight. Your, each one of your feet is on a step and your butts in a, and it's basically a hammock style seat. And typically in a normal hunting situation, you know, they're all equally, you're carrying equal weight on your butt and each foot. So, and your knees are going to be slightly bent to maybe even straight when you physically do take a shot. So it's going to be very similar to standing and taking a shot. You're, it's, it's much simpler and you have a lot more support for your shooting style shooting from a harness than a tree stand because the tree stand if you stand up basically all your weight's on two feet or if you sit down your knees are bent 90 degrees and it's very difficult to move let's take let's say take a shot you know in front of you because your knees are bent so much you know they're kind of almost in your way Mm -hmm. with the harness your knees are just slightly bent or maybe your legs are even straight so you've got total support on each foot and in your butt and I mean, it, you are solid as a rock. And if you're a gun hunter, it's even more so because now you've got a tree in front of you. You just, and I'm not a gun hunter, by the way, but you just prop the gun against the side of the tree and you've got the tree as basically a rest where your, you know, your forearm of your gun in your hand is, is against the tree. So you've got a rest as opposed to just, you know, holding a gun freehand 
you know, and the excitement level, maybe your barrel's waving a little bit. You just got a lot more solid rust with the, the tree being in front of you to rest the gun against. Yeah, that seems handy. And I've, and a lot of guys, a lot of guys I know shoot recurves and longbows out of a harness. It's yeah, they're and I don't practice out of a harness. I practice off the roof of my house. I've got a platform on the roof of my house, which replicates the heights that I hunt from. And you know the the try the shooting triangle that you mentioned is very very critical, and that's why I practice from from a height similar to what I I hunt from because if you practice on the ground where everything's straight up and down, your body's straight up and down, your arms are perpendicular or parallel to the ground, your your left arm's parallel to the ground, and your head is straight upright, your bow triangle, which is from your eye to your anchor point to your bow grip, that's that's called your triangle. Now, when you practice like that and you sight in like that, as soon as you get up in an elevation and then you bend, you're tipping your head down, and then you draw your bow back on a deer, you've totally changed your eye to anchor point angle or distance because you're leaning your head forward. And you will almost always shoot high. If you practice from the ground and then you shoot from a tree, you're going to almost always shoot high. You know, the only way you can practice from the ground and properly shoot from a tree is when you're in the tree, hold your left arm parallel to the ground, just like you would, just like if you were on the ground, Draw your bow back with your head straight up and then bend at the waist where you're keeping that triangle exactly the same all the time. But if you lean down, tilt your head forward, and then draw your bow back, your eye to anchor is shortening up. It's very minimal, but your your triangle is changing and you're going to shoot high. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, it's it sounds like my concerns may not be valid, but are there any are there any valid downsides in your eyes? Or or if, if you're going to say no, is there anybody that a saddle isn't a good fit for? Because it sounds like we, we're talking through, there's a lot of situations where a saddle-style setup is a good thing. Is there any type of person or type of situation where it's not? <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but let me clarify that. You know, it's kind of like Scentlock. There's been thousands... Probably 100,000-plus people have bought Scentlock and got winded because they have no clue how to, use, how to use it and properly care for it and store it. And I don't blame those people because I don't think the manufacturer has done a great job of relaying proper care instructions. It's the same deal with a harness. If you buy a harness and you don't use it correctly, you're probably going to be uncomfortable with it and you're not going to end up hunting out of it for very long before you sell it to somebody. There is de- there's a site called saddlehunter.com. It's been around for several years now. There's tons of people on that site, and they're willing to help anybody that wants to get into this style of hunting. But if you were to take, let's say, the old trophy line saddle, which I heard is going to be coming back out in 2019, uh, if you were to watch their old DVD on how to hunt from a harness, you would be very uncomfortable, and I would be shocked if you hunted out of it more than one time before you set it off to the side and went back to your tree stand. If there's a proper way to use it. There's a proper way to hang from it. There's how much weight you have in your butt, how much weight you have on your feet. You know, there is a drape adjustment for within, so within two to three seconds, at any point in time, you can change your drape adjustment to put more weight on your feet or put more weight in your butt. You know, you can lower or lengthen the, the lead strap. Um, so how you hunt out of it has everything to do with how comfortable it was. Cause they used to show 
hooking the lead strap up at arm's length, and then your body, you never want your body to be beyond parallel to the tree. You always want your body either leaning a little bit forward into the tree or, at worst case scenario, parallel to the tree. Well, when you got that lead strap hanging almost straight down in front of your face, it almost forces your upper body to lean backwards. And if your upper body's leaning backwards for very long, your back's going to get sore and it's going to be very uncomfortable. So, you know, how you hook up the lead and all that stuff, and I'm making this sound a lot more complicated than it is, it's very simple. You just need to get a little bit of feedback from somebody that knows I get emails on this every day uh, on how to properly hook it up and set it up. But once you, once you know how to hook it up and it's very, very simple, no, there is absolutely zero downsides. All right. Well, uh, John is making a compelling case for his favorite hunting tool here, but uh, we're going to have to put time out on this conversation because I want to take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. So Spencer, we'll take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Neil Hogger, a land specialist out of Wisconsin. And Neil is going to be talking to us about how the shopping process is different in areas that are famous for big deer. Well, Buffalo County is a nationally known county, obviously. Um, a lot of the land there that comes on the market and is sold really never make it, makes it to the market. So that's a major difference. In a county like Polk in Wisconsin, it's a top 10 Pope and Young County, excellent hunting, but it just doesn't have the uh, notoriety that Buffalo County has. So to find property in Buffalo County, I think the approach needs to be, you've got to get as close to the center of influence as you can. Working with a, an agent like myself with Whitetail Properties, uh, you know, we're moving and shaking in these counties all the time. We're constantly talking to people or people are approaching us. So if you're looking for quality land, I think you got to get to the center of influence, and that's a guy like me. Um, in a county like Polk, which is you know just as good hunting, you could you could search the typical avenues of of Whitetail Properties real estate websites, Land Watch uh, type prop, property real estate websites, Zillow even, and you can find property there um, just as easy. But in an area like that, and probably for Buffalo too, I'd say get to a guy that is selling land. Uh, you want a land specialist, not necessarily a residential real estate agent because they'll have the insights that you need. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Neil currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash hogger. That's H-A-U-G-E-R. Okay, so if we're speaking of that then, the proper way, is there anything else you would add as far as the proper way to use or set one of these up? So let's say, okay... You've sold me on it. I'm convinced. I'm trying a saddle. I pick up a saddle. In a second here, I want I want you to talk a little bit about our different saddle options. But before that, let's say I, I bought a saddle. And now I'm going to go out and actually try using it. What would you tell me to make sure I don't use it the wrong way and have a bad experience? Probably the number one thing I would say is when you're standing on your ring of steps and you're actually going to hook up your lead strap, your safety straps around the tree, so you're 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 safely in the tree, but now you want to hook up your lead strap, wrap the rope around the tree at about forehead level, not above forehead level. Because if you wrap the lead up at arm's reach, that lead's going to be right in front of your face. Whereas if you hook it at forehead level, that lead, once you actually sit down in the seat and disattach your safety belt, it's going to be coming down to your waistline at about a 45 degree angle. 
So then when you go to shoot, you know, your arm's going to go, your elbow's going to go right over top of the lead. The lead's not even going to be in the way of anything, and you're in a lot more comfortable shooting position, or uh, sitting position. Because uh, that's, that's another downside of hooking your tether real high, is with that lead strap coming down in front of your face, if you want to take a shot 90 degrees to your left, if you're right-handed, which is typically what you set up for, is a shot right to your left, your elbow hits the lead strap. So by hooking it too high, it's not only uncomfortable, it's also a detriment to you drawing your bow back. So you want to keep that lead strap down a lot lower. And I've been doing this since 1981. There isn't anybody in the country that's hunted out of a harness more than me, period, end of discussion. And I've, you know, just like when I first bought a, a sling, I, I was extremely uncomfortable. But... I'm always looking to move forward in my success rate, and I could see the massive potential of this thing over any type of a tree stand. So I worked on it and got it worked on it, so it was it worked for me. You know, I, I figured out how to make this thing work for me because what I'm hunting out of now is a hybrid. It's got little pieces of several different companies, harnesses that have been out there. And, and mine's really, really small. It's got a phenomenal adjustment ability, which all of them have adjustment abilities now. But, but uh, yeah, I'd say the number one thing would be keep, keep your lead strap down at eye to, to forehead level when you, when you wrap it around the tree. Speaking of, you've got a hybrid option that you're using, but what are the commercially available options? If we want to go out and try something like this, what is out there right now? Can you can you talk through maybe some of the options, pros and cons, what you might recommend, mm-hmm. anything like that? Sure. Both options out there right now are really, really good. <laughs> uh, the My personal preference is one that just came out. Now, Jeff, or I'm sorry, Greg Godfrey, who's one of the main people at saddlehunter.com he's been out of hunting out of a harness for quite a long time and he's came out with this new one and it's called the mantis m-a-n-t-i-s and the only place you can buy any harness is online you can't buy them in stores right now so his is available at uh, www.tethrd so tethered t-e-t-h-r-d nation n-a-t-a-n-a-t-i-o-n com so www.tethrdnation.com and his only weighs about a pound i think it's 15 ounces um so it's it's a minimalist which is once you've hunted out of a harness for very long you want as minimalist as you can get <laughs> and uh, he also has his his site has uh, options of using a small platform to put your feet on as opposed to steps you know if you're hunting public land you know, it's a strap-on uh, platform, very, very small. Uh, Lone, Wolf, Lone Wolf used to make one for harness hunting, and it was called the Assassin. And this one's similar, but it's smaller. Um, and then the other harness company out there is, uh, it's, by, it's New Tribe is the company, and they've been in the recreational arborist-style harness business for years and years and years. They're, they're based out west where recreational tree climbing is actually a hobby uh so the one that they have on their site is called the kestrel like a hawk k-e-s-t-r-e-l and that one can be bought at newtribe.com now my preference is the mantis because they're very similar in style the kestrel and the mantis are extremely similar they have the same safety options they have the same lead strap options 
the only difference is the Kestrel is a solid fabric, so it's 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 a heavier fabric. When I say heavier, they're both heavy enough to be safe. Um, it's a, a heavier solid fabric, whereas the Mantis has the heavy outside nylon strap, but then the actual seat is made out of mesh. So it rolls up pretty close to the size of a softball. When it's all rolled up, it's very small. and weighs about a pound. I think the Kestrel is about three pounds. And the only difference is the Kestrel is a solid seat, and the other one is a uh, is a mesh seat. And uh, also the Mantis, the one that's made out of mesh, the seat is a little bit shallower, which I prefer. I just want it cradling my butt. The the uh, Kestrel is a little bit deeper seat. So it, it's up about where your belt would be is the top, and then the bottom is down maybe a tad bit into your thigh. So is there Whereas comfort? The mantis just covers your butt cheek. Is there comfort difference there then? You know, with that bigger seat, is that going to be more comfortable for some people or maybe for bigger body types or anything like that? Um. Well, they make them in sizes, so, you know, that that wouldn't be an issue as far as comfort. No, I don't think it's any more comfortable. Okay. What about accessories so. and stuff? I know when you and I had talked in the past about getting a saddle set up for me to use someday, there were a whole bunch of different options that you could include. You kind of talked about you use this minimalist option, but there's a whole bunch of other kind of bells and whistles that some of these saddles have. Can you speak to any of those things that you might recommend or that are out there that people could consider? Well, when you when you buy these harnesses now, back in the day, you know, the old tree saddle, it came with everything. Uh, these harnesses, because saddle hunter... Of the Saddle Hunter website, there's so many people with so many different types of lead straps and adjustment drape, you know, Prusik knots for adjustment drapes or rope man for an adjustment drape and different types of uh, bridge straps. Um, both of these harnesses, basically, you can put whatever type you want on them. And I think that's very, very unique. Yeah, because you can kind of custom fit it to whatever you are doing, or you have the option of ordering the entire kit, which comes with, you know, a factory lead strap, a factory safety belt, um, you know, like that, where you get what they, they, you know, whatever they're they've put in this kit. So you have you have a lot of different options. Now, my preference is uh, I like using the rope man adjustment for my adjustment drape because it's so quick and simple. Uh, the other option would be a Prusik knot. You know, that's how you adjust your drape. The Prusik knots, you know, when you want to make a quick adjustment drape, a lot of times a Prusik knot, it binds. I don't know if everybody knows what a Prusik knot is, but a Prusik knot will actually, it actually binds on the rope, so you have to loosen it up sometimes to make it slide to adjust your drape, whereas a rope man... It's it's a it they're made for the arborist industry and they're a very quick adjustment drape just I mean literally two seconds to adjust your drape how you're sitting and when I say two seconds I'm not talking about twenty seconds it, that I'm saying is two I'm talking about two seconds one two something that just popped in my head as you're talking through this and making adjustments and stuff is what if you have to adjust what you're wearing. You know, I imagine like you head out and hunt, it's warm in the afternoon, but the sun sets and it, you know, temperatures drop 10 to 15 degrees and you want to add another layer. Um, does the harness make it, str- it a struggle at all to add clothing or maybe a rainstorm comes in, you want to pull on your rain gear? Do you have to get out of the tree to do that? No, 
I change my clothes almost every single time I hunt, and I do it in the tree. I always, I never, because I want my entries to be as cool as possible. I'm going in as lightweight as feasibly possible. So if it's cold out, I've got all my layer garments in my backpack. So once I get up on stand, I take off my scent lock jacket, throw it over a branch or whatever, and let my body cool down, and then I, your whole upper body is exposed. There's nothing on your upper body whatsoever. So basically, you just take off your jacket, put on your layers, and put your jacket back on, and you're hunting. Yeah, it's it's nothing to change your clothes. You can't you can't fall out of this thing. I mean, your upper body is totally exposed. You're you're basically like sitting in a hammock seat with your feet on steps. So yeah. Now you can't change your lower your lower garments. Your lower garments, whatever you wear in, typically you're tied to that. Okay. Could you slip rain pants over top of the harness around your waist or is it too, would the, would the straps coming out of it keep that from being possible? Could you, you're going to have to run that by me again. Sorry. So I'm, I'm trying to envision no this. Problem. So if I had like a pair of rain pants that normally I'd slip over and you could maybe put that over top of a, a harness or something, would that be able to slide over this or no, because of the straps coming out of the front? I'm guessing no. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't put, rain pants over top of the harness because you got the straps coming out of the front. But let, let me let me back up a little bit. If you wanted to put on a pair of rain pants while you're on stand, yeah, you could. Basically what you'd have to do is get your pants out of get the rain pants out of your backpack, you know, while you've got all your weight pretty much in your butt, lift up your left leg, put put the pant on that one, then lift up your right while your left's back on another step, put it on that one. And you you could lift your weight up you know, then you pretty much stand up where you don't have any weight in your butt, and you could slide your pants up underneath the harness, you know, and then buckle them up and put them back on. I'm I'm just saying it's it's just not a typical thing to change any of your bottom layers. But, yeah, you could definitely put on pants. That wouldn't be an issue. But to, to take pants off and put on long johns and stuff like that, you know, that's you could do it. It's just not simple. It's extremely simple to change your upper body garments. But typically... Weather related, not rain related, but weather related, your lower body usually has doesn't get cold like your upper body. You know, if if, you, if anything is going to get cold, it's going to be your upper body and your extremities. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned how you would put your weight on certain steps if you were trying to get your rain pants on or something like that. That that brings me to my next question, which was about your your feet situation when you're in these harnesses both how you climb into it and then also how you position your feet or what you use to rest your feet on when you're actually up in there. I know there's a lot of different options people use. You have briefly mentioned what it is you use, but could you walk through the different options for climbing and for standing when you're up there and then the pros and cons of those different options? Okay, well, on public land, you obviously have to use strap-on stuff for ascending the tree. So, you know, if if you wanted and you had a bunch of sticks, you could use strap-on sticks, even though they're cumbersome. Or what I tend to do is I use strap-on steps, which are made by Cranford, uh, C-R-A-N-F-O-R-D. Um, now, for private land, I use screw-ins. Or oftentimes, if the farmer lets me, which I do have done this in the past, you know, I'll I'll drill holes with a cordless drill and put three-eighths or half-inch spikes in the holes. And, you know, use those for steps because they're cheaper than buying screw-in steps. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, screw-in steps. Um, and I, my 
preference again is Cranford. Cranford, hands down, makes the best steps in the marketplace. There's not even anybody that competes with them, in my opinion. Uh, so I use screw in usually folding steps to go up the tree, and then up at the top for my ring, I will either use you know basic rod steps, half inch rod steps, or even three eighths inch rod steps. You know the conventional steps, or the uh, they're called Cranford Deluxe steps as my ring, and I'll usually I'll usually space my steps around the ring at the tree, you know, up, up the top where my feet are going to be on. I'll usually space the steps about eight inches apart, eight to ten inches max apart, because you don't, when you are making those movements, if you do need to move around the tree for a shot opportunity, you don't want to make any big, big step rigid movements. You want them to be very subtle and very simple, so you can just easily slide around the tree, uh, which typically you don't Typically, on most hunts, maybe 80, 90% of the hunts, you're going to make your kill from where you're physically standing, where you prepped your tree in the first place, you know, from the position you're sitting in. Uh, but there are occasions when you do have to move around the tree, so you want to make that as simple and easy as possible. And I use screws in, screw in steps at the top. There's, uh, st- there's a strap-on ring of steps, a bowl something or other, I can't quite remember the name but bold steps maybe and uh, it's basically a, a bunch of steps that are on a ratchet strap so you can slide the steps wherever you want them and put them in place and then you tighten your ratchet down and then you get your steps you know that's your strap on steps cranford is also coming out with some of those and they should be available uh, by by uh, october Cranfords are going to be metal steps on a ratchet strap. These bowl steps are plastic steps. So I think the metal ones are going to be better when they are available. But right now, the only thing available for a ring of steps that are strapped on are those bowl steps. Now, what about those platform options? Is that is that more comfortable, or is that why would why would someone go that route rather than the ring of steps like you're talking about? I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> I own. I had a guy give me a lone wolf assassin stand, you know, which was made again for for harness hunting, and I've never ever used it. I I just see no purpose because now I'm getting right back into carrying something cumbersome with me. You know, I'm carrying a a framed piece of metal, which I don't like doing because where I hunt, that's just not conducive to getting to where I want to go. Um, but there are guys on saddlehunter.com that have used this assassin, and now this uh, Tethered Nation company, they've got one of those platforms coming out. And I don't know, maybe because you can move your feet around more. You know, they don't go all the way around the tree. They just maybe go, you know, a little over 90 degrees around the tree. So you've got something flat to put your feet on. Um, and I think a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, I think there's some people that, haven't quite figured out how to use their adjustment drape where you can adjust to where you don't have much pressure on your feet. You know, I'll adjust my drape probably two to three times during a hunt, but again, it only takes three or four seconds. So let's say I'm I'm in more of an upright standing position where my knees aren't bent that much and most of my weight's on my feet. Uh, if my legs get a little tired, you know, I'll just lift my weight up and let a little bit of my lead strap out. And now I'm sitting where my knees are bent almost 90 degrees and all my weight's on my butt. I have hardly any weight on my feet. 
and vice versa. If I feel like I've got too much weight in my seat for too long a period of time, I lift up and pull up on my adjustment drape, and now I'm sitting more upright where my knees aren't bent much, and now more of my weight's on my feet. Um, but you got to you have to have the steps go around the tree in certain situations where you see it when you prep the tree. You're you're going to need it, uh, you know, so that you can move around the tree. So even even with that platform, that's going to be only where you're sitting. So you're still going to have to put steps beyond that on either side if you think you're going to have a shot op- a shot opportunity beyond where you're physically sitting while you're at rest. If that made sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I imagine that seeing these things, I think when you're describing the different adjustment straps and stuff, that's that's Mm -hmm. a little bit hard to picture in my head right now. But I but I think I get what you're saying. So this is one of those things I imagine though people, you know, getting your hands on this and actually seeing it will will make a big difference too, right? Oh yeah, there. I'm making it sound a lot more difficult than it is because it's it's really very very simple. I can climb. On a pre-prepared tree, I can climb my tree and be hooked up, my lead strap be hooked up in, I think 30 seconds would be a long time. It's that, it's that quick. And I've been doing it a long time, but I mean, you, you, if you go on saddlehunter.com to research any of this stuff before you even buy it, you know that's that's what I would suggest, but it 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 will definitely up your kill opportunities. And once you once a person learns how to do it by just talking to somebody that's actually done it for a couple of years, it's very simple. You know, it's just like again, it's just like scent lock. Once you've got the process down of being taking proper care of your stuff and keeping it in airtight containers, you know it it. I can park my vehicle and get out of my vehicle and be sent free probably quicker than anybody else I would go hunting with. If we parked at the same time, I'd be out of my vehicle ready to go before they are. And because I've got the process down and hunting out of a harness is the same way. And it's, it's really simple. I would always suggest for anybody to get one, you know, put some steps 18 inches up off the ground in a tree in your yard or on a telephone pole and just practice from it a little bit. And, you know, once you get the movement down and you get the, you know, hided, you know, where you hook your lead strap and all that down, then just practice however you practice otherwise and then just, you know, climb up your tree and hunt. Yeah. Do you have, is there anything that you do or things that folks should be thinking about as far as getting set up in the tree, you know, more efficiently or quietly? Because I imagine this is one of those deals, as we're talking, if you're freelance hunting or, or being a mobile hunter when you're going in and, getting set up right then and there to hunt and maybe you're tight to a bedding area or something where there's going to be deer within earshot, you know, is there anything you do to make sure that you're not spooking deer, that you're able to pull this off? It's a little bit more um, involved than just climbing up a ladder and sitting down or something like that. So any advice on that front? Well, when I'm freelance hunting with my harness, uh, my concern about spooking deer is with my physical presence and noise getting to the tree. Um, you know, as far as prepping the tree, you know, screwing steps don't make any noise. Uh, hooking up my harness does not make any noise. You know, obviously when the foliage is down, if I'm in a bedding area, you know, as I get up the tree 25 feet, 
you know, with good foliage being down, if there's something bedded within 40, 50 yards, they may phys- visually see me. But uh, other than that, I'm never worried about the noise. It's not like a tree stand where you got to pull up a clanky old piece of metal up a tree and you're going to make noise. I don't care who you are. You're going to make noise with a tree stand, either pulling it up the tree or hooking it up. You're going to make noise because you're, you're altering bark and stuff if you're in a rough bark tree. And and a lot of them have chains and whatever. So you're, or with a climber, God, you, there's no way you can get up a tree with a climber without making noise. That's physically impossible. Uh, with a harness, and I'm making it, I'm making it sound like this wonderful utopian hunting system, which it is once you learn how to do it. Um, but it's there is no noise. You know, you don't make noise screwing in a tree step. You don't make noise uh, wrapping a rope around a tree and and hooking it to your waist. That doesn't make noise. So there is no noise other than me physically going up the tree or me physically walking to the the location. So, okay. So let's rewind a little bit in this process, though. Let's actually go back down. We're on the ground. We're freelancing. Mm -hmm. We found a location that we think looks good. Can you walk us through what you're thinking about when choosing the actual tree? Um, I know you've talked about how the harness gives you the ability to hunt a much wider diversity of trees, but is there anything in particular that you are looking for that's going to help you say, okay, yes, this is a tree that'll work, you know, for, you know, to take a step back for context for as a tree stand hunter, when I'm looking for where I want to hunt, I'm looking for a tree stand that's within range of the feature or trail or whatever thing I think is going to pull deer within range of me. But then I'm also looking for a tree that I can get up into with my strap on sticks. I'm also yep. looking for a tree that has enough cover at the height I want to be at. So I'm, so I'll be hidden up there. I'm also looking for something that's going to give me, um, adequate shooting lanes, you know, with minimal trimming, you know, so I'm looking for a bunch of different things when picking that right tree. What is it you're looking for in your situation? Well, I'm looking for the exact same things you just mentioned, but when you're hunting out of a harness, you open up pretty much every tree in the area. I don't know how many times I've talked to hunters that find a destination location and there is no adequate tree for their climber or their hang-on because hang-ons typically have... uh, you know, you're going to want a tree because of the straps, a specific diameter. So they have to actually set up away from the destination site on the best routes to it, and that negates some of the other routes coming to the destination site, and it totally negates the destination site altogether because you're the best sign to it. So you're missing out on some opportunities. With a harness, you know, I can hunt a four-inch diameter tree. I can hunt a tree that's three-foot diameter. I can hunt a tree that's leaning. There's just It opens up a lot more tree options for me to prep at or closer to the destination site so I can take advantage of all the sign and all the runways feeding this destination site as opposed to two or three that feed it, you know, over back here where I have a suitable tree for a conventional stand. So, but yeah, I'm all, I'm looking for the same thing. I'm looking for the tree that's going to be in the best spot to give me the best concealment cover up the tree. And that's another thing about a harness. You typically will end up hunting higher because you're so safe and comfortable once you get used to it. So, you know, you're going to set up 25, possibly 30 feet when the foliage is down during the rut phases because you don't want deer to pick you with their peripheral vision like you would in a tree stand. Um, most guys that are freelancing 
with tree stands, you know, they're typically carrying sticks in a tree in a tree stand. So they got a lot of stuff on their backs and they're not only limited to the tree, but they're making a lot of noise when they're setting the trees up. Um, so the harness just opens up a, a just a lot more opportunities in, in pretty much every aspect of hunting. The only time I could see where, and no, nah, I can't even say that. I was going to say Michigan, as you as you well know, Mark, probably 80% of the hunters in Michigan hunt over bait, which is going to be interesting with the CWD thing going on. Um, but so many hunters that hunt over bait, you know, they, they set up tree stands because they never, ever have to move. You know, the deer come into a three-foot destination spot. Uh, the only downside is usually they're they're in a position in the tree where, you know, in Michigan you hunt that spot a couple times, and now every every mature doe and even subordinate bucks and sometimes even the fawns after a couple hunts there, they're looking at that tree before they even walk into the bait pile. Now, I don't bait, but I've heard that a million times. You know, they get picked so easy. So, so with the harness... Uh, you know, I was going to say, you know, sitting in a tree stand, a lot of people like that because they think it's more comfortable and you're just sitting in one location shooting at one destination spot. But with the harness, you could actually be on the backside of the tree. In fact, that happened to me once. And this is a really great story. And it's about a doe, so it's not a mature buck. I, was, I had a friend hunting public land, and he had a hang on, and he was hunting over bait. This is up by Everett. And he had this big mature doe that was coming through this swampy area and before she would actually exit the swamp and come to his bait pile which was maybe 10 or 15 yards out into a little opening by this big uh tree he was hunting in she would she would come to the edge and she would look at the bait and she'd look up in the tree and she would see him in this tree stand and then she'd start blowing and snorting and you know pretty much his hunt was over for the evening so he, he called me up one evening, and he's talking. We're just talking, and he mentioned that. And I'm like, do you want me to go kill her? And he said, how are you going to kill her? I said, do you want me to go kill her or not? Sure, I'd love to get her out of there, he said, because she's ruining all my hunts. So I said, okay. you know. And he went and showed me where it was in the middle of the day, and I went back, and I climbed up into his tree stand, and then I put another, I don't know, four or five steps up on the back side of the tree, and then hooked up in my harness. So I'm on the back side of the tree trunk, and exactly what he said happened. This big doe came out, stood on the edge. She had two fawns behind her, stood on the edge of that. She probably stood there for five minutes, and that's a long, long time. And she would look to the left and look to the right. She'd look up in the tree. She'd look at the bait. And she did that for a long time. Finally, she felt comfortable because she couldn't see anything and she couldn't smell anything. And she walked in and started feeding. And, of course, when she was feeding on the bait, she was facing the tree. She was looking right at the tree. Well, then the fawns came out. And after, you know, two, three minutes, she became comfortable. And she moved into a position where I had a, a broadside shot and her attention was focused elsewhere. And I just swung around to the side of the tree and shot her. And that was the end of that. Um, so, I mean, that, and that guy was a good hunter. He was a very good hunter. He had a, he had a lot of cover up there where his tree stand was, but he had to be in a position because it was a big diameter tree. He had to be kicked a little off to the side and she could pick him. Interesting. You know, out of his tree stand. Yeah. So, so that scenario makes me think of another question, um, you know, related to making the shot from the saddle or moving is there anything that we haven't covered yet as far as, you know, advice on how to actually handle when you're up in the tree, how to move, when to move, how to get set up for certain shot situations, 
Um, because again, it is unique compared to sitting down in a tree stand, standing up and making a shot. Anything that we haven't touched on yet as far as how to correctly maneuver up there? No, it would be it would be identical to a maneuvering if you were in a hang-on or a physically sitting in a climber. You see stuff coming. You assume your opportunity is going to be here when all this stuff culminates together, and you move accordingly prior to when that opportunity is going to happen. The only difference is with a harness, you're going to have 360-degree shot opportunities, so there's going to be times when you need to move to prepare for a specific shot opportunity, whereas if you were hunting out of a stand, you wouldn't have that opportunity. You have to hope he comes to the side of the someplace around the tree where you could actually shoot because you can't shoot on the back side of a tree if you're in a, a tree of any diameter. So, but it, it'd be the same as a tree stand. You know, same as a tree stand. If if you're in a tree stand and you're expecting your shot to be somewhat forward or to your left, and a deer you see your shot opportunity coming in, and it's going to be from the right side of the tree stand. You have to stand. You have to physically stand up before that opportunity gets there because you see it coming, and you you are in the ready position for that shot. So you're basically standing up and turning around 180 degrees, so you can have that shot opportunity. Now it's to your left, but when you were sitting, it was to your right. So it's a, it's exact same scenario, you know. And obviously, a novice hunter is going to have a little bit more difficult time, whereas a seasoned hunter is going to know what to do and when to do it. Yeah. You know, something I glossed over and I meant to ask you about, I want to take us back down to the bottom of the tree now again. Um, back to this freelance situation. We're walking around. You talked about how you picked a tree and how it's similar to the things I was looking for. Um, but the next step for me is always, okay, now what amount of prep do I need to do? Because, and again, this is a situation where I haven't already pre-prepped a tree in the uh-huh. spring or summer, yeah. but now I'm actually out there on the day I want to hunt, and I'm thinking, okay, how much do I need to trim to make this huntable? And how much, you know, what lanes do I need to cut to make sure I have a shot? And there's always this careful balancing act between opening up enough so I can get a shot, but then also not making any more disturbance than I have to. Also don't want to open up any more and eliminate any more cover than I have to. Um, can you talk us through how much of that you do in this type of scenario? Um, what your thought process is on that? Yeah, it totally depends on where I'm hunting. If I'm, uh, if I'm hunting out West, uh, and I'm going to pretend I don't have a good scent control regimen, okay? And I'm concerned about the wind and deer wind in me. I'm going to pretend that's the case, which it's not. If I'm hunting out west, I'm going to, once I find the tree, it's within shooting distance of all this neat, cool sign, whether it be scrapes or a rub line or a scrape line or that there's a white oak over there with the acorns on it, Um I'm going to probably, if I need, I'm going to probably go to the destination shots, spots where I think I might get a shot and look at the tree where I think I'm going to be sitting once I prepare the tree. And I'm going to maybe clear something because out there I'm not concerned so much about as, as much about odor. I'm going to try and still be as scent free as possible, but I'm not as concerned about things as I am in Michigan. In Michigan, I'm going to walk to the tree prep the tree. I'm not going to cut anything unless it's a branch going up the tree that I'm going to physically be hunting in because a lot of times I'll cut little branches off because I don't want to come down after dark, think I'm stepping on a step when in actuality it's a dead branch or something. I don't want to, you know, and then this branch breaks. Uh, so in Michigan, 
I won't go out if I'm freelancing and clear runways because uh, I personally would because of my scent control. But I also, in Michigan, I don't want to even have the odor from cuttings. People just don't realize what a difference it is hunting pressured animals with heavy pressure versus lightly hunted or managed areas. When you go in and you even cut shooting lanes and you're going to hunt that evening in a state like Michigan and you're after three-and-a-half-year-old and older bucks or Pennsylvania or West Virginia or upstate New York, you know, just the odor from what trees you cut could potentially make a mature buck not come to that destination site because that odor is not supposed to be there. Whereas in lightly pressured states and managed areas, they're not going to pay that much attention to it. It's, they're going to do what they do anyway. Um, so depending on where I'm at is going to depend on how I prepared the site location as far as shooting lanes. I guess if that's, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, and it makes it makes perfect sense, and I'd say it's probably in line with what I've seen too. So, so, so back to this umbrella topic of being a mobile hunter, we talked through a lot of things related to what you do with a saddle. We talked a little bit about some of the ideas that you could you know use generically, no matter what it is, whatever kind of hunting setup you have. But is there any major angle? on this topic that we haven't touched on, John, that you think we should as far as how to be a mobile hunter or how to use this kind of idea or philosophy best or even anything else on the saddle side of things that we haven't covered? Well, no, not really. I guess the only thing would be I I certainly wouldn't want your viewers to, your listeners, to think that this is strictly something for mobile freelance hunting you know this is something i've used exclusively i haven't hunted out of a tree stand in years um, so this is something i've used exclusively in all my hunting locations and i've i've probably in michigan because i i lose property all the time you know if i kill a big buck on somebody's property that gave me permission and they've got nephews and stuff well as soon as they know you killed a big buck they want to hunt there and then you're the one that's out and they're in so i've hunted probably in my 50 plus years in Michigan, over a hundred different private, small private parcels. And I think I've wanted 19 different public land parcels, one of which I took a state state record off. Um, but I don't want to pigeonhole this harness thing into just mobile freelance hunting. This is something that you should, that I've used on all of my tree setups since 1981. So this is, you know, just inline general purpose hunting on my hunting stand basically yeah it, it uh, and it just happens versatile. to work yeah and it just happens to work phenomenally well for any situation whether it be you know all my prepared locations or a freelance or a, a mobile hunt you know it just works well for for everything because because it's it's small it's lightweight it doesn't make noise um, you know, you put a bunch of steps in a fanny pack you, and so you can take off freelancing. It's, uh, it's not cumbersome. All that stuff matters. Yeah. I'm, I'm planning a hunt this coming October up into the Boundary Waters Wilderness area of Minnesota, where you actually have to canoe in on a canoe in for a week into the back country and try to find some deer. 
and this setup with a saddle just seems like the the absolute best way to do that because taking in a stand and sticks or multiple stands and sticks along with everything else we need to live out there for a week our bows food etc etc like that would be really difficult to get all that in a canoe and portaging from lake to lake uh, this this saddle thing just seemed like the absolute perfect tool for that kind of hunt so i'm excited for that E-E-R. F-E-C-T, you're absolutely correct. That is, this harness thing is going to be 100% perfect for that situation. Yeah, um, I'm excited to, uh, I'm excited to give it a try. And I, I appreciate, John, you you walking us through all these different ideas and how you're using this tool and, and some of the different tactics that you're using that I think that, you know, a lot of this could be helpful to people, even if they don't end up using a saddle. I think some of your, your higher level philosophies here could be applied to whatever kind of hunting tool you want to use. So, so it's, it's good stuff. Is there, is there anything, John, before we wrap this up that uh, you could point folks towards, um, if they want to learn more from you, I know you've got all sorts of books and you've got some online things going on workshops. Can you just kind of give us the rundown of, of how we can learn more from you? Uh, sure. Um, I've written three books, co-authored them with my son, Chris, uh, bow hunting, pressured whitetails, Precision Bow Hunting and Bow Hunting Whitetails the Eberhardt Way. And they're, I, I'm sure they're still available at Amazon. And they're also available on my website at deer-john.net. And I've also uh, published three instructional DVDs. They're th- two hours long each. One's on postseason scouting and location prep. Uh, the second one's on in, or preseason scouting and location prep, and the third one's in-season hunting techniques and tactics. Um, so I've got the DVDs and the books. They're all on my website. And I'm also doing these, uh, last year I started doing these, uh, oh, God, bow hunting uh, deals where people come in for two days into central Michigan. Uh, first day is in field. Second day is a large sporting goods store in their seminar room where we do seminars. I do seminar and do a lot of Q&A with the attendees, limit them to 10 per, per session uh, on scent control, pretty much anything to do with hunting. And on day one in the field, we're looking at all my locations on this 37-acre piece of, piece of property. We're going by 14 locations explaining entry routes, exit routes to each location, morning spots, evening spots, midday spots, early season spots, uh, you know, pre-rut spots, rut phase locations, basically explaining the rhyme or reason. Typically when I get out my harness at the first site, people are like, where's your tree stand? Because I say, I'm going to get up in this tree. And I've got my harness in a little tiny fanny pack. <laughs> I mean, it's it's literally the size of a softball. When I pull that out and get up in the tree, they like freak out. <laughs> it is literally freak out at how small and and this thing is and how quiet it is and how fast I get up in the tree and prep it. But anyway, these these are called whitetail workshops. They're also on my website. And then I'm also doing. Uh, just started these in May. I taped 26. Uh, YouTube topic videos. They're short videos, three to five minutes each, for deer and deer hunting, the Deer and Deer Hunting magazine. And they started airing in May, and there's a new one being released every Tuesday on the Deer and Deer Hunting website through the end of November. So these, for the title of this series is Public and Pressured Land Deer Hunter with John Eberhardt. And again, these were done in conjunction with Deer and Deer Hunting magazine. 
Um, I will send you the link, Mark, and people can kind of click on these links. And basically, once you watch one video, um, it'll there'll be a little pop-up where you can watch the previous one and so on and so on. And there's going to be a new one released every Tuesday through the end of November. Um, and, you know, my criteria for deer, deer, deer hunting asking me to do that was, again, I've got 31 bucks in the Michigan record book and 19 from out of state. So I've got 50 bucks in the record book, all from public and, you know, free permission properties. Uh, so everything I've done, ever done in my life has been pressured. I've never owned or leased or paid a dime to hunt any place in my life. And uh, so that's why they came to me to do this. So that's about it. <laughs> well, hey, that it's it's all helpful stuff. I've seen the videos, I've read the books, I've watched the DVDs. Um, it's it's all been very helpful to me. So I appreciate everything you've done, John. And actually, last summer, um, I was speaking at a Backcountry Hunters and Anglers event, and you and a bunch of the attendees for that weekend's Whitetail Workshop were, were able to meet us yeah. up there. And I got to talk to some of the people that had been with you at the workshop, and it seemed like they had learned a lot from your event as well. So it seemed like that's a that's a great educational opportunity for folks. So, John, well, I appreciate you. Yeah. You know what? I got to say something. I want to tell you thank you too because you and your site has helped so many hunters and you know i think your goal is like mine i just want to try and educate hunters to be the best that they can be and be the most successful they can be and and your site is hands down the best one out there as far as podcast and i want to thank you for bringing that to, to the hunting world i appreciate you saying that john that uh means a lot coming from someone who who's helped me so much so let's make sure to to do this again john it's always a good time and i i'm really excited to give the saddles a try this year and maybe next year around this time we can talk about my first season trying one and um i'm sure i'll i'll make some mistakes and maybe you can help me figure it out after that i'm going to try and help you figure it out before you have any opportunity to make any mistakes ah, that's an even better idea <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, I'm going to hold you to it. Okay, Mark. Thank you. And that's going to be a wrap, folks. Appreciate you tuning into this one. Hopefully you found it interesting. My usual spiel here, I will stick to just asking you to rate or review the podcast if you haven't done that yet. I'd also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're subscribing things, I'd say go to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. Check out the videos I'm posting there. I just did a whole series analyzing my 2017 hunt for the buck I've been calling Holyfield. It's been a three-year process. I'm heading into year four. So I just broke that whole thing down in three videos. Check those out. Um, hopefully that'll set us up for some good stories and some interesting things here in 2018. So with all that said, I will just say one more thing which is that I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I appreciate you supporting Wired to Hunt. And until next time, thank you and stay Wired to Hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 